Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 16. Uh, We come to the end of our two-year study, verse by verse, of the book of Romans today. And whether you graduated cum laude or thank you, Lord, you made it. We're we're here at the end. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 27, our text this morning. Now, for the past few Sundays, we've been examining this final section of Romans in which the personality and the passion of the Apostle Paul is on display. And far from being a cold and aloof ivory tower theologian, Paul is discovered to be a gentle and kind and genuinely interested in the welfare of the believers there in Rome. And we saw last Sunday that uh, he took some time to send nearly two dozen of them personalized greetings. This after he had said of the church as a whole that he was convinced of their goodness, of their biblical literacy and their competence to counsel one another. So Paul did not have a low estimation of the saints in Rome, but rather a very high regard for them and a deep love for them as his spiritual siblings. Now, when we feel that way about people, sometimes it's hard to say goodbye when the time comes. Before 9-11, you could go to any airport in the United States and see this as people were bidding farewell to their loved ones who were going off to military service or traveling internationally. They would embrace one another and hold on to the very moment right before the door closed to the airplane. Many of you parents are going to experience this in just a few weeks when you drop off your high school graduate at college this fall. Well, even though Paul was not with these believers personally, he found it hard to end this letter. We call the blessing at the end of something a benediction, don't we? And if you have an order of service, there's nothing on the program after the benediction. That's what benediction means. It's the end. Well, here in the book of Romans, Paul has three separate benedictions. Chapter 15, verse 33, chapter 16, verse 20, and as we'll see in a moment, chapter 16, verse 24. And after each of these benedictions, he seems to say one last thing. So let's pick up where we left off last week in Romans 16, 16. You remember Paul has sent his greetings to two dozen individuals and to include everyone in the greeting, he says, give everyone a kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we still have this saying in our culture, at least in the South where I grew up. You'll say goodbye to a friend and they'll say, hug your mama for me. Or, or give the kids a kiss. This first century church obviously was an affectionate one. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. There's nothing untoward or erotic about this. It's just sweet, innocent affection for one another. But before he closes the letter, there's something in his heart he needs to say. He loves these folks so much that he can't refrain from warning them about the danger that they will certainly face in the very near future. So let's read the text. Romans 16, 17 says, Now I urge you, brothers, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, 
but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Now this final section of Paul's letter begins with an urgent warning. Starts in verse 17. He says, I urge you. You can hear the urgency in his tone and in his voice. And he calls them brothers, this term of endearment. He seems to be drawing them close intimately, looks them in the eye and he says, you keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned. Now, I suspect you parents, if you haven't done it already, before you send your child out into the world, you're going to draw them close and look them in the eye and say, there's some dangerous things in the world. And you need to watch out for, and you need to avoid these sorts of things. And Paul is like a parent having to say one last goodbye and he, he wants to warn them having just alluded to the sweet unity and fellowship and affection in the church at Rome, Paul is reminded that Satan won't stand for that unity and fellowship and affection, and he's going to do everything in his power to disrupt it. Charles Spurgeon used to say that if Satan can't destroy the church from the outside through persecution, he'll simply walk the aisle and join it. We need to be wise to his strategies that those who come into the church with the reason to cause dissension. He says, first of all, you have to keep your eyes on those. The Greek word is scopia. Those of you that like to hunt know what a scope is, right? Well, this is, this is this word. It means to put your eye on them and look closely at them and observe them, mark them out. These are the folks who have earned a reputation of causing unrest and dissension repeatedly. Not just someone who made a one-time mistake. It's someone whose reputation wherever they go is that they cause problems in the church. Paul calls them in the book of Titus, factious men. That is, they divide people rather than unifying them. I mentioned last week that we take a practice from the ancient church of sending letters of recommendation when one person transfers from one church to another. Many years ago, there was a person that joined our church and they presented themselves as a very loving and knowledgeable Christian, but before very long, they began to cause dissension. And trouble in the church and caused me a lot of personal grief. And finally, I, I looked up their letter of recommendation and called their pastor who happened to be a friend of mine and says, tell me about this person. He said, uh-oh. <laughs> he said, I guess I should have told you. This person is very difficult. I said, yes, you should have told me that <laughs> in the letter that you said that they were well recommended. But that's sometimes what we do when someone's being decisive, we pushed them on to someone else, and we shouldn't do that. Now, um, this happens from time to time, and Paul tells us how to deal with that people. First, you've got to keep your eye on them, and secondly, 
he warns them that these people do things which are contrary to the teachings that you have learned. So it's not just that they have a personality conflict or fault. The kind of people Paul says we really need to watch out for are those who are false teachers. Matthew 7, 15 says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jude, the brother of Jesus, says these false teachers are clouds without water. Yesterday, we had some of that in Keller. We hear a lot of thunder and lightning. The clouds look like they're about to burst forth, but they moved on without dropping any rain. That is, they make a lot of noise. They appear to be of substance, but really there's nothing to them. So how should we handle these factious, false teachers? He says, turn away from them. That is, avoid them. Don't listen to them or give them credence. Ultimately, if it's severe enough, we are told in other places in Scripture to remove them from fellowships. Now, sometimes it's obvious when a person falls in this category, but most of the times it's very subtle. It takes wisdom and discernment not to be deceived. Why is that? Because false teachers are salesmen at their heart, and their motive is not your best interest, though that's how they present it, that I just am concerned about you. But really, he says their God is their appetite, which means that they are motivated by personal gain and self-enrichment. This takes the form many times among these false teachers with money and power and, yes, sex. But they pretend they care about the person, but they're there to use that person. Through smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the unsuspecting, which are the naive, the uninformed, And he's saying, you shouldn't be uninformed or naive. You need to be wise. Now, secondly, we see a joyful expectation in verse 19. It's almost like Paul doesn't want to spend much time on that unpleasantness of thinking about false teachers and deceivers. So right away, he turns his attention to commending them for their reputation again. Remember, he's been saying some wonderful things about these people. He pauses to warn them that not everybody's as nice as you are. In verse 19, he says, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. I take that to be all the churches that Paul corresponds with. They know about the dignity and the godliness of the church at Rome. He says, therefore, I am rejoicing over you. That is, when he thinks about them, he thanks the Lord. It's what he said to the church at Philippi. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, making requests with joy. And I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Graduates, that is my prayer for each of you. As you grow up, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul is saying to this church, look, I know you're genuine. I know you can handle anything that comes your way, but I do not want you to feel like you have to become an expert in every heresy. He wants them rather to concentrate on what is true. The best way to recognize false teachers is to immerse yourself in the truth of the word. It will be like a person who thoroughly learns a beautiful piece of music. And when a wrong note is struck, it will be like nails on a chalkboard to you. False teaching is contrary. That is, it's out of tune with what the word says to what you've learned in the scriptures and been taught here at First Baptist Keller. And then he gives them a word of encouragement. He says the God of peace, that is the God who not only gives you peace in your heart, but gives you spiritual peace through salvation. He's going to bring an end 
to this spiritual warfare one day, he says he will soon crush Satan under your feet. You'll say, well, it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't crushed him yet. What does he mean? That word soon here is, is not a great translation to the, in the English. It, it means he will quickly, suddenly. That is when everything, everyone thinks that Satan's about to win, God will suddenly crush him. He's alluding here, of course, to Genesis chapter 3 what we call the Proto-Evangelium, where when God is pronouncing curses upon the earth and upon the serpent and upon humanity because of Adam and Eve's disobedience and sin, the first prophecy of Jesus Christ appears, which says the seed of woman will crush the serpent under his heel. But that's not what Paul said here. He says God will crush Satan under your heel. Why didn't he say Christ heel? Because you remember, we've been studying through the book of Romans this wonderful theme of our mystical union with Christ. That is, as he says in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. That is, through faith, we are so attached and unified with Jesus that we share in his victory and we share in his glory. So Paul could rightly write when God crushes Satan ultimately, under the heel of Jesus, it's also under our heel as well. This is wonderful theological truth. And then he moves, verse 21, to a warm greeting. He says, from those who are in Corinth with Paul. In other words, Paul is in the city of Corinth writing this letter. He's going to send it by Phoebe, we saw last week. And he greeted 24 people that he knew in Rome. And now he says, these people who are with me in Corinth... I want to recognize them because they want to send their greetings to you. I'm not going to take as much time to these names as I did last week, but there are some interesting connections. Look what he says here. There's some names you'll find familiar. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. And that may throw you. You thought Paul wrote this letter. He did through the pen of Tertius. Tertius was what we call an amanuensis or a secretary. Remember, Paul had some eyesight problems, which probably prevented him from writing himself. And so uh, he would dictate to this man Tertius, and he would write down the letter. And so Tertius is just taking the moment to send his own greetings. And then he says, Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greet you. And Quartus, the brother. Now, Timothy should be familiar to most of you who've been in church very long. Timothy, of course, was Paul's protege. He said of Timothy, I have no one like Timothy. I've been so blessed living here in Keller near to Southwestern Seminary that through the years we've had a constant um, revolving door of young men who are preparing for ministry that I've got to invest in. And I call them my Timothys and my Tituses. And one of them got married last night and we got to see a couple of the others. And it's always a joy to see them doing well in life. And Paul was so proud of Timothy and uh, entrusted Timothy, really, to carry on his ministry when it came time for him to die. And then he mentions a man by the name of Lucius, who I think is probably Luke, who traveled with the Apostle Paul, who was his personal physician, who, by the way, was a Gentile. And Paul notes that when he mentions the next two, Jason and Sosipater, who he calls kinsmen, which means they were Jewish like Paul. And these two men were representatives, we know from the book of Acts, from churches that were sending this offering with Paul to Jerusalem for the poor saints there. And that tells us that Paul was a man of transparency and accountability. 
He didn't say, just give me your money and don't worry about it. Wherever he took up an offering, he had a representative from that church travel with him to make sure it got to where it was supposed to go. And then he mentioned the man whose hospitality he was enjoying, Gaius, who was host to me in the whole church. That is, Paul was um, being treated to hospitality by this obviously wealthy man who had a home large enough for the whole church to meet in. Remember, they didn't have church buildings at that time. And then he said, Erastus, who's the city treasurer. That was a, a dignitary who obviously was, was wealthy as well. Um, remember, I often quote 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, not many noble, not many wise, not many of the upper crust crowd God has chosen, but he's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Now, I always tell you that he didn't say he has chosen none of those people, none of the wealthy or the noble, He's just chosen few compared to the rest of us who are common. And here's an example. Gaius and Erastus were from the upper crust. And yet here they are with the Apostle Paul and with those who are of the lower classes I'm about to show you. Because then he says, I greet you from Quartus, the brother. Now, let's concentrate on Quartus for a second. Uh, we've already heard from Tertius, and now we hear from Quartus. Now, the name Tertius is a slave name. He was almost certainly a slave. And the name you might know from mathematics means third. We talk about primary, secondary, and tertiary, right? Tertiary means third level. So Tertius is really a title given to a slave. It means a third level slave. <laughs> Not very prestigious, right? Well, several years ago, my wife got into a television show on PBS about a wealthy British family that lived on a large country estate in England at the very end of the Victorian period. Now, I admit, as a student of history, I enjoyed it as well. That's what you say when you blame your wife on something, right? <laughs> well, the plot followed not only this wealthy family and their children, but their many servants that lived downstairs on the property. And among the servants, there was a clear pecking order. And those at the lower levels of servitude sought to make it to the higher levels. And so the man who ran the house, who was the unquestioned boss of the servants, was the head butler by the name of Mr. Carson. And well, it reminds me of, of, of this letter, because in the ancient world, they had servants and slaves and they ordered them by ranks. And those at the lower ranks sought to make it to the higher ranks. And do you know how they ordered their servants? The man of the house, the head butler, was called Primus. He was the number one man. And the second level servant was called Secundus. He was the number two man. And the third level slave was called Tertius. He's the number three man. That's the guy that wrote the letter. And do you know who the lowest slave in the house was? Quartus, the number four man. And Paul says, get this, right after he has greeted them in the name of the wealthiest man Paul knows and the most important man Paul knows, Erastus, he says, and Quartus, the lowest slave in the house, greets you as well. Now, what does that tell us? Well, what I love about the gospel, among many things, and what I love about the church is that not only were the number three slave and the number four slave, Tertius and Quartus equals in the eyes of God, but they were equals to Gaius and Erastus, the owner of the house and a prominent Roman official. There's no distinction in the eyes of the Lord, is there? 
Now that reminds me of Galatians 3.28 where Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so Paul wants them to know that this is something new. Because in the ancient world, the slaves and the rich didn't mingle. They didn't have much in common. There was a clear line of demarcation and distinction. And yet in Christ, those things go away. And friends, we live in a culture today that, that we say is supposed to be based on merit. But the truth is, we divide ourselves in so many ways, right? And that Satan loves that. He he's, tries to divide us over race and size and intellect and bank balances. He, he doesn't care why we divide so long as we do. And yet in Christ, we become brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't matter what our background is, whether we graduated first in our class or dead last. I had a friend I graduated college with years ago that, to my great surprise, graduated from medical school. I say to my great surprise because he, like me, was not a great student in college. And so the next time I saw him after he graduated medical school, I, I said, where did you rank in your class? He said, well, Keith, you know what they call the guy that graduated dead last in his medical school class, don't you? I said, what? He said, doctor. <laughs> now, I'm not saying I want to go to him as a patient, but, but he made it. <laughs> and so Paul is saying, look, in Christ we're all one whether you're the number one man or the number four man. So then he turns his attention in verse 25 to a final benediction. Final benediction. Now Paul has offered already two amens. Did you notice that? I told you a week ago he, he said amen and then he wrote a whole other chapter. But this time he means it. All right, look what he says, verse 24. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with you all. Amen. And then he pronounces a doxology, which is a song of praise over them. He says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever and ever. Amen. One final amen, which means, of course, so be it. Now, I want to conclude our study of Romans this morning the same way I started it nearly two years ago. In fact, the same way I start any new book study when I introduce it, I tell you that the book of Romans is not about Paul. Just like I said when we studied the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah is not about Jonah. And we studied First and Second Kings. I said it's not about Samuel or David or any of these great kings. Every book in the Bible is about God. This is his story. In fact... In every book of the Bible, we also find an arrow pointing to the Lord Jesus. And so when we began a study of any book of the Bible, I told you there's some diagnostic questions we need to ask of the text every time we read it. What does it tell us about God? And what does it tell us about Jesus and the gospel? And so here's Paul. He's finished this marvelous letter. And for the last chapter and a half, he's been giving personal greetings, pouring out his heart, but he doesn't want to end on that note. He wants to make sure 
that God gets the glory. And so what does he say? Now to him who is able to establish you in the preaching of Jesus Christ. And so I want to say to all of you, and I certainly want to say to our college and high school graduates, look to Jesus. This book will guide you as long as you understand it's not about you. It's about him. And as we think about what this particular book of Romans is about, let's, let's remember it starts off with some bad news. It tells us that whether we are and view ourselves to be morally upright or the, or the worst pagan in the world, we're all sinners according to Romans 3.23 and we shall fall short of the glory of God. All of us are without excuse, he tells us right away in the book of Romans. He knows that people are going to say, well, I'm an exception. I'm not in desperate need of a Savior. He says, yes, you are. And then he talks about those who are Jewish and those who are Gentile, those who are religious and those who are irreligious. He, he just brings us all before God's court and says, guilty, guilty, guilty. And just when it seems like there's no good news to be had, he tells us what Jesus did. He informs us of the doctrine of justification by faith, that even though we deserve God's wrath, and even though we stand before Him guilty, and even though we deserve the white-hot wrath of a holy God, God has done something incredible. He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. And He says, of course, that, that those He chose, He called, and, and those He called, He justified, right? And, and implied there's those that He chose to justify, He also one day is going to, to glorify with Jesus in heaven. And so here is the, the good news gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that he summarizes in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you don't remember anything from your high school years and if you don't remember anything from this two-year study of Romans, remember this, the hero of the book of Romans is Jesus Christ. Jesus died for our sins on the cross. And Jesus has made it possible for you to be reconciled to a God that you were born into the world in rebellion against. And our theme that we send you out into the world with is soli deo gloria. That for those who've been called by Christ and saved by Christ and justified by Christ, we have a reason for living. And that is to bring glory to Christ with every fiber of our being. And the scripture says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Because we are his servants, aren't we? And, and whether you are man number one or lady number two or servant number three, or, or you find yourself, in your opinion, with the most menial task in the church. You know what David said about that? He said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than a thousand days elsewhere. David knew that it was an incredible privilege and high calling to call yourself a man or woman of God. And he knew that he was a sinner, and yet he knew that he was forgiven washed clean, purged with hyssop. 
And if you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've called upon his name, you are a child of the Most High God. You are forgiven, you are clean before him, and you cannot out the grace of God. And this is what he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now, there's grace for salvation, which we must have. Grace means unmerited favor. Paul says in Ephesians, salvation is by grace. But we need his grace every day. We need his grace to live in this dark and dangerous world. And having been saved by grace, we call upon you now, graduates, to live in grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ every day and for the rest of your life. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these graduates who are sitting here before us today. Lord, I thank you that many of them were born to parents who were already members of this church and they went through nursery and Bible school and many of them were baptized right here in this baptistry. Others came from other places later, but however they got here, Lord, they're here now and we thank you for them. And Father, we like Paul are not naive. We know we're sending them out into a dark and dangerous world to face temptations that many of us didn't face when we were their age. And, and Lord, uh, they're prepared. As you said of the church at Rome in, in your word, they, they have, uh, they're competent to counsel. They've been taught in the word. And Father, uh, many of them demonstrate personal righteousness and goodness. And Father, I pray as they, they go off to college and to the military and join the workforce and eventually start families of their own, Lord, that they would not depart from the faith. Father, I pray that they would uh, be examples to all of us, as Paul said Timothy should be, not, not to let anyone look down on their youth, but be an example to all of us, Lord. Father, I pray for older adults here today as we've sat under the, the teaching of the book of Romans nearly two years now. Been a difficult climb in many ways, deep theology, and yet, Lord, rich and much needed. Father, as we've seen on Paul's conclusion, it's, it's about Jesus. It's not about us. It's about what he did in our place as going to the cross as our substitute to pay the penalty for sin that we could not pay. Father, I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice has bowed their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and received him as their personal Lord and Savior. But Lord, if not, and if not in the second service, Lord, we pray that you would grant faith and repentance to some soul here today. Father, I pray you'd take the things we've learned from the book of Romans and change us and to grow us and to sanctify us that we may be a blessing to others in days ahead. Father, we pray you've been pleased with all that's been said and taught from this book. Pray you'll use it for many years to come in our lives. We'll give you the glory for any good that's accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.